you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of Acts. We will start in verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. While you're turning there, I'm Thomas. Uh, I'm an elder here. I'm not much of a preacher, so bear with me tonight. Um, I feel like God's got an important word for us, and if it is garbled in the giving, may it still be heard by the power of His Spirit. So with that assurance, let's go to God's Word. Acts 20, verse 17, to the end of the chapter. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard, in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Pray with me. God, please open your word to us. I pray that your word would be thick in the room, that it would fill our ears, that it would taste um, sweet uh, in our mouths, and that even if it doesn't, even if it's bitter uh, in the eating, that it would be good for us, that it would nourish our souls. God, that is your work and not my work. It is not uh, me that anyone came to hear, but you. And we have faith 
that you will speak all, to, to all of us, that you will instruct us. Um, God, I pray that your word would go forth and that my words would be forgotten. May you accomplish this for the sake of your son Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This text uh, hopefully is familiar to you because Joel preached about it. I don't know what to do with my hands, I'm, I'm awkward. Uh, Joel preached about it uh, April 1st of last year, April 1st, 2012. is a great sermon, one that you should go back and listen to. The podcast is still online. I listened to it yesterday uh, so that I wouldn't repeat the things that he said. Uh, my sermon tonight's about eldership. Uh, it's about shepherding. And uh, the purpose of this message is, I think, threefold. A lot of you are new, and it might be interesting for you to know that Redeemer is an elder-led church, and we should figure out what that means. Also, many of you got an email this week. The members got an email from Joel this week talking about how we were appointing new elders. And at the time of appointing new elders, it's good to reflect on the calling of an elder. And so part of my sermon tonight is a charge to myself as an elder and to the other elders that are here. But most of all, the purpose of preaching and of preaching about eldership isn't to give a how-to or to give an explanation, but to exalt the name and the person of Christ who uh, we see how eldership points to him is only possible because of him and is ultimately an act of worship to him. He is our great shepherd. Um, so I'm not really going to talk about the qualifications for elder. You can find those Second uh, Timothy and in Titus in particular. The most remarkable thing about those qualifications is they're not very remarkable at all. They basically say that an elder is to live a life of holiness like all believers are supposed to. They do say that elders are supposed to teach, but other than that, they're pretty much the same as the call that goes forth to everybody. The heart of eldership is not in the qualifications. Uh, I think instead we'll find the heart of eldership in what Paul was talking about when he charged the Ephesian elders. Uh, But first, before we jump into that, I want to define some terms. I'm going to set some context. To define terms, you might be curious to know, elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, where we get Presbyterian from. Um, Obviously, Presbyterians name themselves after the elder form of government. Elders play a major role in that denomination. Uh, We see the word elder pop up a lot in the New Testament, both referring to Christian elders and referring to elders in a city or, or Jewish elders in the Gospels. Uh, another common word that's used for the same office is episkopos, where we get episcopalian from. Uh, it literally means overseer. Uh, some, some of your Bibles might transwer- translate that word bishop. It's an, just as valid a translation. And the third word that's used to describe the office that I'm talking about is that of pastor, which literally means shepherd. Now, these three offices are interchangeable. They're not distinct. They are three names for the same office. Uh, And one more introductory point to make is that everywhere in the New Testament that you see these offices described, unless it's explicitly talking about one person as a group of elders, elders is always plural. Uh, Every church that's governed by elders is governed by multiple elders. We saw in verse 17 that we just read, Paul's addressing elders plural. In Titus 1.5, he instructs Titus to appoint elders plural in every town. And Peter, in in 1 Peter 5.1, exhorts the elders amongst you, not the singular elder amongst you. Uh, There's a normative statement here that there should always be more than one elder in the church. Uh, We should never count on one person. So with those terms defined, let's set the context for Paul's sermon. As as you may recall from Joel's message a a year ago, this is the only recorded sermon of Paul that we have that Paul gave to believers. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders, uh, and he's doing so on, he's on a journey. 
He's leaving a missionary journey and he's returning to Jerusalem. And just like Jesus set his eyes to Jerusalem and went there to die, Paul is going to Jerusalem, he thinks, to die. And he's, he's right, although it's going to take a long time and a much longer journey after this. He feels compelled by the Spirit, constrained to go to Jerusalem, and he knows that this is the end for him. He's about to lose his freedom. So the town that he stops in is called Miletus. It's a town on the ocean. Paul's traveling by boat, and it's about a day's journey away from Ephesus. So he sends for the Ephesian elders, and it probably took a day or two or three for everybody to get there. So Paul is giving a prepared sermon. This isn't, he didn't like hop off the boat, spout off some words, hug everybody, jump back on the boat. This is carefully constructed. He's put this together to make a point. And I think his point is this. He's, want to hold, he's holding himself out as an example of what elders should do and how they govern and serve the church. About these Ephesian elders, Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus. It's a city where he encountered a lot of uh, opposition. He got beat up. He was, there were riots. Um, and he, he worked hard while he was there. So he would have gone through a lot with these elders. He may have been there for the conversion of many of them. He may have singled them out as people who would be good elders one day. Paul's intimately connected with these guys. He knows them well and has suffered with them. He's probably also argued with them, given the kind of guy that Paul was. And now he's giving them his last words. Uh, this is the last time he thinks he's ever going to see them. And so he's carefully composed his last charge to them. And that last charge lays out three broad rules for elders. First, identification. Second, teaching. Third, shepherding. Now we're going to look at these, these three different functions. That's kind of the, the bulk of my sermon. But I want to start off with what's not on the list. Uh, because I think a lot of us, when we hear about elders, we think about church leadership generally. We would add a fourth office on there. We would say, oh yeah, executive. You got you to be able to run an organization. You got to be efficient. You got to be a good leader. That's not on the list. And I think its omission is very purposeful. A part of the job of an elder is to run the church. There is a management function, but it is the lowest and it is the least important function. And it is the one that must flow from the others if we're going to be a, a Christian organization. We're not called to professional management we're called a sacrificial servant leadership. If I might kind of tease this out in a concrete example, uh, Joel mentioned earlier that we've got a lot of kids coming to church. We also have a lot of adults coming to church. Uh, this room is getting full. We, uh, tonight's not as, not as full as other nights have been. There have been times that we've just about run out of space in here, and it came up at our last elders meeting. What are we going to do? Where, where are we going to put everybody when the room fills up? What are we, what's our plan? And we talked about that for about two minutes, and then we said, uh, you know, we'll count chairs later, and we got on with what we consider to be the bulk, the most important thing of our work, which is sharing the needs in the congregation, praying for people, giving updates about people who've been struggling and that who need help, and sharing praises for where God has worked. That's the substance of what we do. That's not kind of an optional side task once we've figured out how we're going to manage the church. That is the work of eldership. God primarily calls elders to care for the church, not to management, not to manage it. Or if I was going to put that another way, I'd say that if we're too busy for our shepherding tasks, then we're already too big and we've already run out of room. Shepherding a church is much more than providing enough chairs. That's why we're appointing new elders. The church has grown. We've grown a lot in the last couple of years. And we have grown to feel that we can't faithfully discharge the obligations of an elder relationally 
anymore. There's just six of us, and it's not enough to get to know everybody and to discharge our duties according to what I'm about to talk to you about. So with that kind of that background and that view of what we need, let's look at Paul uh, and the substance of his speech in these three roles of eldership. Paul begins with identification. Now, the first thing that he says to the Ephesian elders is, you know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. At first, this seems to be extremely unremarkable. Paul says, I came to Ephesus and I lived with the Ephesians. Um, but remember that Paul is being intentional here. He, he's prepared this, this sermon with, with a plan in mind, and he's starting with the, most, uh, the foundational point, which is an elder must identify with the people that he's going to serve. That the, all of the tasks, all the functions, all the jobs of an elder don't rest on a foundation of ignorance, but on a foundation of personal knowledge. We all have to, we have to know one another. An elder must be acquainted with the church and with its needs personally. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls life together. And it's actually a pretty radical point. I mean, it seems obvious, but I think it's radical. We live very isolated lives, or at least we have the capacity to. It's very easy for us to withdraw into an electronic life or into just working or, or, or just having the one thing that we do that's highly specialized. We don't have to get to know a lot of people. And the people that we know, we don't have to know in every facet of their life. I think the call to eldership, to church membership, is to get to know all of people, to get to know them slowly and intentionally and, and deeply, to make friends, to open up your house, to share meals together. This takes time, and it takes a lot of effort. I mean, Paul stayed in Ephesus for years. It wasn't like there were, there were no other places that needed to hear the gospel. The gospel had never been shared before, and yet Paul stayed in Ephesus for multiple years, for three years. He did that so that he could get to know people deeply and be able to apply the gospel to their lives directly and profitably. This is hard work. You'll notice in verse 19 that Paul says this identification process took place through tears and trials and with humility. Now, the particular hardships that he suffered, the plots of the Jews, is not something that we deal with now, but I don't think that's, that particular context is limiting. Instead, Paul's lesson is more general. He said, the work of identification is hard work because it means suffering and inconvenience. It takes time to get to know people. It takes, it's difficult to get to know people. People aren't always pleasant. And we see uh, that people have problems. And what Paul is saying is that an elder has to identify, so identify with the congregation that the, the, the problems of the congregation are personal to the elder. It would have been easy, for example, for Paul to say to the Ephesians, hey, y'all have lots of riots here in Ephesus. I don't particularly like being beat up, and I'm going to go somewhere else where they're not having riots and threatening my life. Um, but he didn't. He stuck it out. He invested with them. He said, no, this, this dissension, this, this opposition in Ephesus that is not my problem, I'm going to make my problem by identifying with you. And I think that that's very important for elders today, to identify with the problems that are facing the congregation, to take them on as our own, to feel the weight of them. And then out of identification flows the second function of eldership, which is teaching. Paul says that he taught the Ephesians, and he gives three a kind of three axes on which you can measure his teaching. He says where he taught, he says who he taught, and what he taught. Where? He taught in public and from house to house. I think both of those are terms of art. Teaching in public 
in the Hellenic world, in the audience that Paul was talking to, means that he was uh, teaching in, he was, he was engaging with the leading lights of the city. Back in, uh, in this kind of post, uh, this kind of early Roman Empire, you had a lot of people called sophists that would go from town to town and they would argue and it was a form of entertainment. They would, they would get up in front of the people and they would argue a certain point and then maybe they'd turn around and argue the opposite point. People would come out and listen to this. It was, it was fun, I guess. It's, it's kind of like watching uh, cable TV shows today or cable news where people get up and just yeah back and forth at each other. That was, uh, that was a form of entertainment. We still do it. I guess we're not that different. Uh, saying Paul went out in these public places so he's not just standing on some street corner hollering the gospel at the wind or at people as they're walking by. He is intentionally engaging with folks who are educated, who are trying to influence the intellectual life of the city. And he's saying, I'm, I put the gospel in front of those people. I, I engage the problems of the public life of the day, and I, I put forth the gospel as a solution. We see an example of that if you flip back to, to chapter 19. It says that Paul spent uh, spent months at an Ephesian synagogue arguing. And when he was finally opposed there so much that he had to leave, he went to a, a different hall, the hall of this guy named Tyrannus, and he argued there for so long that he says, everyone in Asia came to hear the gospel. Um, so he, he is out there talking a lot for a long time. Uh, but he's not just doing that. He's, he's preaching in public, but he's also teaching from house to house. Now, he doesn't mean, I don't think, that he's being a Jehovah's Witness, knocking on one door, talk to that person, go to the next door, knock on that door. No, I, I think house to house is where the church was meeting. The church would, would gather in people's homes, and Paul was out of having identified with these people. He knew what was going on with them, and he was discipling them uh, individually and in small groups. Um, I think that's what he means when he says that I declared to you everything that was profitable. He knew what was going on with them, and so he was able to say, Here's how the gospel applies to this particular problem that you've got in your life. Uh, now remember that Paul is an apostle. He's, he's seen the risen Christ. He wrote most, or a, a very good chunk of that New Testament. This was a guy with incredible gifting, incredible knowledge. And he's spending his time teaching people eh, one-on-one, maybe helping them wrestle with their doubts about the resurrection, maybe helping them in their marriage or with their drinking problem, maybe arguing with Jews about you know, how to apply the, 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 how much of the law survives the gospel, trying to evangelize people who didn't believe or who had doubts. He's doing all this work instead of, directly instead of, say, writing Romans 2, instead of giving us new books in, in our New Testament that we would still be holding today and studying. That, that's a big deal. It, it is very crucial for us to recognize that Paul, with this incredible gifting, still viewed a primary part of his job as an apostle, as an apostle, uh, to be teaching individually, working on discipleship. If, if you look up in chapter 20, it tells the story of Paul teaching in Troas all night long the night before he leaves. He's so intent on teaching everybody that about midnight, somebody falls asleep who was sitting in a window, and they fell three stories and died, hit the ground and died. Paul goes down, embraces the man, he comes back to life. They go back up to the third floor, they break bread together, and Paul keeps teaching them until daybreak. Paul is passionately committed to individual discipleship, despite his high position. And I think for the elders amongst us, that's a powerful charge. We never, ever outgrow 
the call to personal and individual discipleship. It is a crucial part of, a, of our function. Okay, so that's where Paul taught. Now, who did he teach? Paul said he taught both Jews and Greeks. I'm not going to dwell on all the ways that Jews and Greeks were different, but they were very different. They were different races. They had different religions. They had different views of culture, of government, of law, of, of salvation, everything. They are polar opposites, and they didn't get along very well. Um, I imagine if we think a little bit, we could identify some of those similar divides that run through our culture today. But those are the people who were in Ephesus, and those are the people to whom Paul brought the gospel. He had to be flexible. He had to work with people who weren't like him. He had to try to identify with them as best he knew how. And I think that that's a, that's a challenge to the American church, and it's a challenge to us in this building, in this neighborhood. But it's tempting to think that Paul would change his message depending on who he was talking to. But that's not what he says. Look at what he taught. He says, I taught repentance to God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He taught the gospel. I encourage you to take time this week to read Ephesians 2 and 3 uh, and read about the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Ephesians, to read about how he starts with you were dead in your, in your trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy brought you to life and it carries through this wonderful explication of the joy and mystery of the gospel and it ends with this prayer that the Ephesians would be strengthened to know it in their inmost being and then this, he just breaks out in this hymn to Jesus Christ. I mean, this man loved the gospel. He was filled with it, and it was his fervent desire to preach that one message to everybody in every form that he could find himself in. The same holds for us today. From you who have never believed in Christ, to those of you who have loved and trusted Christ longer than I have been alive, there's one message that we need to hear, is that Christ died for our sins, and yet he lives, that we might live a life of repentance. This message of the gospel, this core foundational message, it works from the pulpit and it works on the front porch. And it really takes both places to teach it well. We need to hear the gospel proclaimed like this. And we need to wrestle with it also in conversation and in application. If it's just preached to us and never applied, we never work it out together, then we risk being fruitless and mere intellectual believers. And yet if we focus only on application and we forget to consider the gospel as the foundational truth on which the entire world is built, we're likely to drift from sound teaching and we'll end up in some powerless message of, I don't know, personal improvement or social justice. It takes both facets of teaching, both form of teaching the gospel uh, in order for us to get to capture the fullness of what it means for us. To try with just one is like clapping with one hand, it's just not going to work. There's a, there's a kind of a fourth aspect to the teaching role, and that is that an elder has to be a teacher and anchor of sound doctrine. It's our job to learn the Bible and to apply it accurately in circumstances inside and outside the church. Where did I put my Bibles right here. Look in verse 29 with me. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, Paul says, there's going to be outside influences that will attack the church. Outside doctrines, 
Paul was likely also talking about real physical persecution. He said, you're going to need to care for the church in, in those circumstances. But he also says, you yourselves are not above falling away from the truth of the gospel. So be on your guard. Uh, cling, to sound, cling to sound doctrine, uh, even if it requires challenging other elders who've fallen away from it. Um, now that brings to the end of teaching, and it's also the easy part of my sermon because now we get to the really hard part. Um, Paul's most difficult sentences begin in verse 25. Uh, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I want you to put yourself in, in the, the elder's shoes here and, and hear someone say this to you. Hey, I'm about to die and you're never going to see me again. You only say that if the next thing that you say is the most important thing that you've ever wanted to say to somebody. He is amplifying what he's about to say. And that's verse 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. That is extremely sobering to me. What's he talking about? It's as if he's saying, if you die, that's your problem. That's on you. That's not on me. I've discharged my duty. And I think that is exactly what he's saying. If you engage with me for a minute, flip back to Ezekiel 33. We could also look at Ezekiel chapter 3 for further study, but we'll go with chapter 33. We're actually going to be in Ezekiel for a few minutes, uh, a couple times tonight, so don't lose your page. I'm going to read the first six verses of Ezekiel 33 and see if you can hear all this applies to what Paul was saying when he's innocent of the blood of all of, of, all of you. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman. If the people of the land take and make themselves a watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, and if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and didn't take warning. His blood shall be on himself. But if he had taken the warning, he would have saved his life. But... If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Paul is saying that he's that watchman and that he's blown the trumpet. And to these Ephesian elders, if, if you don't heed, if you don't heed the full counsel of God that I've given to you, that's on you. It's not on me, Paul says. I don't know if that's heavy to you, but it falls very heavy on me. I can't imagine ever being able to say that with the confidence that Paul has. And I have to kind of particularly charge the elders out here. Is that something that you think you will ever be able to say? And if not, does that mean that we're not innocent of the blood of those that fall away. I mean, Paul's being 
very confrontational here. He's asking a very difficult question, and he's asking it in a context that it would not be common to ask a very difficult question. This is a farewell speech. I mean, at the end, he's here, he's giving hugs and kisses to all these guys. These are close friends of his, and he's telling them, if you do not faithfully discharge your duties, you're basically going to die. Now, we'll see later. I think he's being, he's using analogy and, and perhaps a bit of exaggeration here, but that's exactly literally what the scripture says. And that should be very sobering to us. And I think it also, it, it pulls us into this third function of elder, which is the function of the shepherd. Let's pick back, pick back up. So once, once Paul says that he's, he's innocent of the blood of the Ephesian elders, because he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God, he picks up in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is analogizing the church to a flock of sheep, and he says that the elders are shepherds appointed in that flock by the Holy Spirit. The emphasis here is that the church belongs to God and that he has purchased it at a very high price. In fact, he's laid down his own life for it, which is the highest price that anything can ever be paid for anything. God himself, who made the world, gave his life for the church. If that's not enough to make you slow down, I think Luke is also being intentional about using this direct language here, including it here. I'm sure that Paul talked about the, sac- the direct sacrificial atoning work of Christ more than just once in all of his sermons. But if you read through all of Luke's writing, his gospel, and again in Acts, you'll only see Luke bring up this direct atoning work twice. He does it in the institution of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. He does it here in talking about God purchasing the church for himself. He's emphasizing the price that God paid for the church and its immense value to him. And this emphasis on God's sacrificial atoning work is the central point of Paul's message. He's challenging elders to lead sacrificially as a shepherd, shepherds the, as, a, as Christ himself is the great shepherd of the church. Let's oversee, oh, let's, sorry, let's see, not oversee. Uh, Ezekiel 34, let's flip over one chapter we were. I'm going to start in verse 7 and read to verse 10. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, and since there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. God views the church as his own, and he is passionately committed to the good of the church the individual members of the church. He calls them my sheep, and he is committed to their welfare. And he says that he is against the shepherds that do not view the church the same way that he does, as precious as he does. We are 
as elders charged to love and care for the church with the same degree of sacrifice as Christ loves and cares for the church. And that takes sacrifice. Paul says so. If you look in verse 33, it says he didn't covet anyone's silver or gold or clothes. And in verse 34, he says that he, he worked. He, he paid for his own necessities, although it would have been within his rights to say, hey guys, can you give me a little something here? I'm spending all my time preaching. No, he worked and he didn't just pay for his own stuff. He paid for those of the people that were with him. This guy is pouring out his life and making sacrifices that he doesn't have to, to say nothing of the fact that he's getting beaten up and charged in riots and dragged before magistrates. This guy is suffering on behalf of the church, and he's doing it because he loves the church, because the call of God to an elder is to lay down your life for the church. And that's the charge I've got to give to the elders here. We testify to God's work and salvation when we take on hardship for the sake of the church. Let us not grow weary of it. God gave his life for this flock and any loss or hardship or inconvenience or frustration that we incur are literally nothing in comparison. Our suffering could never measure against that of the God that we follow. And he gave up everything for this flock. Let us do likewise. I'm not going to stop there because I can't stop there because that's a hopeless message. Now, it, me pouring out my life is worth really nothing to any of you. I don't think it would do any good. Uh, and even if all of us did, we're still not enough. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. We would probably back off at the last minute anyway. Uh, you shouldn't put your hope in men. An elder shouldn't put his hope in himself. You're going to fail. An elder's work does not spring out of the necessity of the church's salvation. It brings, an elder's work springs out of the assurance that the church is saved in the finished work of Christ. An elder is free to give. All of us are free to give because our blood literally does not depend on it. Did you notice the subtlety of Paul in verse 28 when he said that you are overseers in the flock, not an overseer over the flock or from outside the flock? He's saying, look, you're a sheep. You're part of the flock. You're not, you're not external from the flock such that you're like some mediator between God and man. That, that's not the case at all. An elder doesn't stand between God and man. An elder doesn't have any saving work to do. As we see, as I'm going to show in a second, we have a work in, in continuing the work of Christ and showing the fullness of the work of Christ, not accomplishing it ourselves. We, all of us, trust in the work of Christ. Let's go back to see this, to Ezekiel 34. So we, we saw that the prophecy of the Lord against the shepherds. Now we go down to verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Skip down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my, of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord. And one last place in verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Yes, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. God himself will be our shepherd. We don't trust in the work of man. We don't we don't work out of the hope that at the end of the day, it's going to be enough. 
No, we work out of the assurance that God will take care of his church, that God himself will be the shepherd, that God himself will accomplish the protection, the feeding, and, and the justification of his flock. And if there are any doubt about this, I mean, consider that Christ takes on himself the role of, of the great shepherd in John 10. It's another place for you to read this week if interested in further study. We don't have time to read the whole thing now. But Jesus is the one that calls us. Jesus is the one that saves us. He's the one that lays down his life for us. And his life is worth something. His blood saves us once and for all. In fact, Jesus doesn't just fulfill the shepherding role. If, you know, we've looked at these three roles of elder, identifying, teaching, and shepherding. I mean, Jesus is most clearly our shepherd. But look, he also identifies with us. I mean, an elder needs to take on the, the pain of the church such that it's his own pain, but Christ took on flesh that he might be like us. He came from perfection and identified with us in our weakness. And it, and it might be a big deal that Paul taught in public places, but Jesus argued in the synagogues and spoke incredible words. He cleansed the temple and said that his house would be a house of prayer. And it might be a big deal that Paul went from house to house when he could have been writing the New Testament, but God himself spoke tenderly to Nicodemus and reasoned with him. God himself called Zacchaeus down from a tree to share a meal with him. God himself healed old blind man Bartimaeus on the road to Jerusalem. God himself spent, poured out his brief time on earth with small groups of sinners and misfits. He's modeled for us individual teaching, discipleship, and training. And I, th I think that example is just overwhelmingly powerful. We are not called to abstractions or organizations, but to individuals. And where all human shepherds will fail in this third and ultimate role of an elder, that of shepherding, where we fail and fail we will, we have a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. What drives an elder's work is thankfulness to Jesus. And, and Paul says as much in verses 18 and 19. He says that he was serving the Lord in Ephesus. He wasn't doing this out of you know, his profound sense of the needs of the Ephesians or because he thought they were particularly good people. He was serving the Lord there. He took on, he took on the problems of the Ephesians because Christ had taken on his problems. He identified with them because Christ identified with him first. And his hope for the Ephesians is not that the elders would grow up and be great men of God after Paul, but rather, as he says, when he commends them, he says, I, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to hold you, build you up, and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. In other words, an elder is free to give. The church can give and show that it is better to give than receive because we have a boundless inheritance with Christ. Any giving, any sacrifice, any pain and loss that we incur is a testimony to this efficiency of Christ. I'm going to end with two quick points of application. And these are for the whole congregation, not just the elders. Uh, first, please pray for the elders and for our families. Uh, the job that I've outlined is literally impossible. It's literally impossible. It cannot be done. And it is, this office can only be discharged through the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit and the grace that Christ can give to us. And remember, an elder is still a sheep prone to wander, subject and susceptible to temptation. If you've been around church any amount of time, 
you have seen with your own eyes the disproportionate impact that sin in the life of an elder or a church leader has on the congregation. Pray for our, for, that the elders would resist temptation, that we would study the word, that we would be faithful to the calling that God's given us, and that he would give us the strength to be so faithful. It's a high calling, and it's a, frankly, an overwhelming one. Second, this again is for all of us, remember that life in church is an act of worship for Christ. When we serve one another, we testify to his work. All of us, all of us should be ready to give to one another even when you feel you've got nothing to spare. The call of the gospel to all of us is to trust Christ so much that we allow suffering to come. We let it come on us when it can help others. An elder has this call particularly, but it goes out to all. If Christ is worth everything to you, if you believe that you are co-heirs of the kingdom of God with Christ, then joyfully show an unbelieving world that you would rather have Christ than money or comfort. Show with Paul, as he says, that you do not account your life of any value or as precious to yourself, if only you may finish your course in the ministry that you receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you that it doesn't change. It is a a light and a lamp to us. May we be guided by that word. And not just guided, God, but filled and, and delighted with it. I pray that you will take this word and that you will shape our church with it. God, that you will make all of us, uh, elders and not, students of the word. And that we will always come to your word and challenge what is said. And God, I pray that you, that you fill us, all of us, particularly the elders, the heart to serve, to identify be prepared to teach in all, in all circumstances and to welcome suffering when it comes, not to seek it out, but to gratuitously uh, suffer and, and puff ourselves up. But God, we have had an easy go of the, of the first five years of this church. It's been challenging. But God, when, when testing comes, when the time for suffering comes, I pray that we will, that we'll be faithful and that we will know, we will know it is better to give than receive. Christ, our hope is in you. It's in your worth and your beauty and your, in your sufficiency, not in the work of any men. I pray that you will fill our hearts with a delight in you that expresses itself through service in the church and the world. Remind us all of your gospel. Write it on our hearts. Thank you for this word in Christ's name. Amen.